Last time I was told I was standing too awkwardly. They might have used a different word than that. And there was memes made about it, so this time I thought I might sit down. <laughs> the people laughing too hard at that joke, you all need to stop. Okay, um, this time I have a more interesting passage for last time I got to preach. I already don't like sitting down, so we're going to fix this in a second. Uh, last time I got to preach on probably the easiest passage possible in Acts, which was the conversion of Saul into Paul, and I got to preach it right after Easter. This time, uh, Lee stuck me with Acts 23 and 24, which if you're like, what is that about? Exactly. Exactly. That's the whole point, right? The first time he's easing me into it, gives me the easiest passage possible. And this time it's like, well, you know, good luck out there. Now you're in the deep end. Um, In my message prep for this, I was listening to um, pretty famous pastor, John MacArthur. He's pretty much known for, he's preached through the whole Bible several times, basically. Okay. So he knows that thing inside and out pretty well. Um, And when talking about a big part of Acts 23, he's like, normally when I'm preaching, I like to get some deep theological point or point of doctrine and really bring that out of the text. And, you know, honestly, beloved, there's just not really anything here. And I was like, great, great, great. This is what we're preaching on. Fantastic. Can't wait for that. All right. If you would join me in prayer before we get into the message, that would be fantastic. God in heaven, thank you so much for giving me another opportunity to speak. I just pray that I would clearly communicate what you would have for us and have for me through your word today. I just pray that the words that I have would come from your Holy Spirit. In your name I pray, amen. So hopefully my clicker will be good and working this time. So this is how I feel about Lee saying that we're going to go through two whole chapters of Acts at the same time. Well, did it work for the other people? No, it never does. People delude themselves into thinking it will, but it might work for us. So we might make it through a full two chapters today. Nobody else has, but we might. We might be able to get there, okay? So by way of background, talking about last week, Um, in Acts 22, which Lee had to breeze through because, once again, there's a lot of content trying to get through two chapters. What is going on with Paul in Acts 22? Does anybody remember what's happening with Paul in Acts chapter 22? Okay, he's preaching in Jerusalem, and what happens as a result of that? Okay, so Paul is preaching in Jerusalem, and this really upsets some people. As a result of that, there's basically a riot. Um, The Roman centurion in the area basically ends up, is going to flog him, but then he ends up saying that he's not going to do that after he realizes that Paul is a Roman citizen. So now what he has done is he has taken him in front of the Sanhedrin, which would be the Jewish religious leaders of the day, and basically says, well, if anybody's going to be able to figure out what this guy is doing wrong, it would be these people. So that's where we enter in to this story is with Paul talking to the Sanhedrin. And this is chapter, oh, I went too far. Okay, so this is Acts 23. You can follow along in your Bibles. It'll be up on the screen for all of it. So he said, looking intently at the council, that's the Sanhedrin, Paul said, brothers, interesting the way he addresses them there. Instead of seeking to find a divide between himself and them, he tries to bring them closer. We talked about before it would have been something not 
really legal for you to address somebody who is not your sibling, like your biological blood, as a brother in Roman times. Okay, So he's actually putting himself at risk by trying to address them in this way. But this is what he does. He says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He's throwing heat right off the bat here. Oh my goodness, this is incredible. Imagine being able to say that. Being able to say, before God, you have lived your life in all good conscience. Now, he's not saying this. He's not saying that he's been sinless. He's not saying that he's been perfect. Obviously, we know from the previous chapters that he's very much not been sin, or he's been sinful. Okay? He's done a lot of bad things. But what he's saying is, now... Since he has given his life to the Lord as a kind of a cumulative statement on his life, he's doing exactly what God has told him he's supposed to be doing. That's what he's meaning by he's living in good conscience. He knows that he's not holding anything back and he's doing the right thing. Okay? So the high priest, Ananias, that is not the same Ananias who helped out Paul with the conversion, but it is interesting that we get some other random person named Ananias showing up, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Ananias, not a big fan of Paul. And when it says strike him on the mouth, this is not just like a slap or a play slap or anything like that. All right, This is a full-on punch. He really didn't like what Paul was saying. Why did he not like what Paul was saying? Because Paul is essentially saying, I've lived my life correctly according to God wants me to do, which would mean that he's saying, I'm obeying God correctly, and these people are about to say, no, you're not. You're blaspheming God. Okay? So we have a big divide between these two people here. So Ananias tells him, go ahead and hit this dude. He's, He's ticking me off. Right? Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Just, just, just saying. Y'all got y'all to gotta up your insult game. You got to get, get some Bible insults, all right? Calling people a whitewashed wall. For those people who don't really understand, it's, I guess the modern equivalent would be a piece of fruit like an apple that looks really good on the outside and you bite into it, it is completely rotten, okay? That's the idea of what he's conveying there. Right? It looks really good on the outside, but on the inside, it's something disgusting. It's actually really gross. So he calls him a whitewash wall. He says, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? If anybody should know the, wall, the law well, it would be Ananias. And yet Ananias is sitting there in judgment over Paul saying, we're going to throw the whole book at him. We're going to judge him according to the law while breaking the law in that very second. Now, it's important to note the only other time that I'm remembering of somebody using the insult of calling somebody a whitewashed wall would be Jesus when he's talking to the Pharisees, not um, not too long a time before He's about to go to the cross, okay? And we're going to see there's a lot of similarities here in this story of Paul to the last days of Jesus, okay? So Paul says that as a word of warning, basically, back to the high priest. Now, to us, that doesn't seem like necessarily that big a deal. You know, Ananias said something. Paul said something back. Maybe he was trying to get, you know, a rhetorical upper hand or something like that, 
But Paul's going to apologize in a second, which is important because Paul realizes he did wrong. It's also important because Paul has just said that he's lived his whole life in good conscience. How can you live your life in all good conscience while also making mistakes? Partly by being able to own up to your mistakes. That's what's going to help you live your life in all good conscience. Okay? So, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Now, it's important to say here, who is God's high priest these days? Who is God's high priest these days? Jesus, yes. Thank you to those of you who went to Sunday school. Okay? God's high priest is Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews is about that fact. The fact that God's high priest for us for all eternity is Jesus. He is the one who makes intercession on our behalf before the Father. Okay? He's the one who basically bridges the gap between us and God the Father. That's what Jesus does. So note the way they say it. They say, would you revile God's high priest? Now note the way Paul says it. Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. He doesn't say God's high priest, but he does say the high priest. Watch how he apologizes here. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul does not get into the game here of saying, yep, I understand this person as speaking on behalf of God, but he also does say, I shouldn't have done what I did because he is somebody who is ruling over the people, and it's not right to speak ill of people like that. That's an important point right there. We're not supposed to speak ill of people who are ruling over us. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't fight against things that they're doing wrong. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's fighting against the things that he's teaching are wrong. Now, it's interesting to say, why did Paul not realize that he was talking to the high priest? It's possible in his anger, he got so angry before that he just kind of flew off the wall and got so upset that he just said whatever came to his mind and then he realized, oh, I didn't even realize who I was talking to. The other possibility is we know from the rest of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about Paul has a thorn in his flesh. And it's not necessarily specified in that moment what his thorn in the flesh is. Some people would say it was bad eyesight. It was bad eyesight. In Galatians 6, um, Paul ordinarily would dictate his letters to people. He talks about, see what large letters I'm writing to you right? That would be because his eyesight isn't very good. So it's possible in this moment that the reason he's saying, I didn't realize who I was talking to is because he couldn't see him. He couldn't see him, right? But he doesn't use that as an excuse. That's important. He doesn't say, well, I didn't know, so therefore it's fine. He says, no, I did something wrong, even though I didn't realize what I was doing, okay? Moving on to verse 6. When Paul perceived, Paul's really smart here, that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Some of you all hopefully realized how clever what he did was there, and some of you all have no clue. Quick old Bible joke to help us understand the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
is the way it was always explained is the Sadducees did not believe in miracles or in the resurrection from the dead. So they were sad, you see, okay? Trust me, that's not my joke. It's not a good one. It's just the way that we remember it, okay? So what does he bring up? He brings up the very thing that would divide him. He says, it is to respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So the thing that the Sadducees would not believe in, that's what he's bringing up. He's basically, you know, rhetorically uniting himself to the Pharisees here. And watch what happens. Because, right, he perceived this. This was clever by him. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. Not really a surprise. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man, right? These were the same people that probably wanted to kill him a second ago. Now, because he said, I'm one of y'all, they're like, well, he's not really that bad. He's not that bad, right? He believes the right thing here. And watch what they say. They said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Well, that was tricky. They're reinterpreting what they know about him back into him. Because he hasn't said that a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. He said that Jesus has spoken to him, which is why they hate him. But now, because he's united himself to them, they're like, well, maybe it was a spirit or an angel. It definitely wasn't Jesus, because it couldn't have been. But, but maybe he did hear something. I mean, who are we to say, right? Who are we to say? We don't know, right? This is the classic, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's exactly what's going on here in this passage. Okay, we move on. When the dissension became so violent, that's how bad these people hated each other, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Okay. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. This is the thing that Paul has been waiting for for a long time. Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem, and Paul wanted to go to Rome. And he talks many times about the fact that how he was blocked from going to Rome. He wasn't allowed to. But God is promising to him here, you are going to go to Rome. It's going to happen. All the while he's on trial, potentially being torn apart, literally torn into pieces. That's when God's promise shows up. Okay? So table time one, we'll have two minutes for each of these because we have like four table times. So can you say that like Paul, you have lived in all good conscience before God? And if not, which is probably not, what would it take for that to be true. Take two minutes, so rapid fire. Hopefully that sparked a decent discussion, if nothing else. Um, Something to maybe think about throughout your week. What would it take for you to live life in all good conscience? Okay, moving on. That was probably the, the longest we'll take on any portion of the chapter. Moving on in Acts 23 here. It says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot 
and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So it's interesting to note about this group is most likely the people who are making this plot, this more than 40 group of people, would have essentially been a league of assassins in the Jewish time. Okay? So for anybody who watches the Arrowverse shows, you understood that reference. But it's a league of assassins in the Jewish time. Um, It's also potentially thought, this is not confirmed, but I'm just throwing this out there, Judas Iscariot, the guy who betrays Jesus, when it says he was an Iscariot, this is who the Iscariot people were. It wasn't a place on the map. It was actually this League of Assassins. Okay? So when Judas betrays Jesus for money, it's because he's doing it for this group of people. Okay? So potentially the same group that would be a part of wanting to kill Jesus, also wanting to kill Paul. Right? Interesting history there. Okay? There were more than 40 of them who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. They're pretty serious about this. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. This is called pretext, right? They didn't actually want to talk to him more. They wanted to kill him, but they're like, go ahead and invite him down so we can just ask him some questions, right? And we're just going to kill him, right? Which is where I put that in. I just want to talk to him, all right? If you know the context, it's any time basically a girl brings home a boyfriend or whatever, and the dad's there with the shotgun. It's like, I just want to talk to him, right? Why do you need a gun to do that? I don't know. It's just a pretext, right? You don't actually just want to talk to him. That's not the point of it, right? But moving on, the whole thing is a pretext, okay? Now the son of Paul's sister, some of you were doing that math, and the son of Paul's sister, that'd be his nephew, okay? That'd be his nephew, okay? Heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Folks, how did he hear of the ambush? We don't know this for sure. But it's possible he was a part of this group. He was a part of the group that was going to kill Paul. We don't know a lot about Paul's family. This is, I think, the first time in the whole book of Acts, because we've been going through it verse by verse, that they're mentioned. The first mention we get of Paul's family, it would seem that his nephew is a part of the group that is seeking to kill him. That's pretty crazy right there. But at the same time, God still uses these people, right? When Paul says that he left everything behind to follow Jesus, it's very possible that he means his entire family. That's part of what it meant for him to live in all good conscience. He was going to do whatever it took for him to follow Jesus properly, which meant that he was going to be disowned by his family. But God still worked in that moment. So Paul's nephew hears of this ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, 
Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say. Kind of repetitive, but here we are. The tribune took him by the hand, going aside, asked him privately, what is it you're going to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. I just want to talk to him, right? But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Okay, so he goes to the tribune saying this is what's happened. The tribune realizes this is really bad. Why is it important for the tribune to protect Paul? Because we've seen him do it. This will be twice or three times now. It's because Paul is a Roman citizen. Okay? It's because Paul is a Roman citizen. So that is why the centurion is so pressed about making sure nothing happens to Paul. Because if something bad were to happen to a Roman citizen, if a Roman citizen just got killed for no reason, the centurion probably would get killed too, or at least relieved of his command post. Okay? So it's important for him that nothing happens to Paul. Okay. Then he said, and he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So basically what they're doing is they're transporting him to somewhere else. They're like, this is above our head, right? Just our local leadership here. We're going to send him to the governor, right? And we understand the same idea. This was like, you know, before if they're dealing with the local government, now they're going to send him to the state government, and eventually he's going to go before King Agrippa, which would be more like the national government or something like that, right? Basically, he's like, I don't want these problems no more. This is way too much. Way too much is happening. Send him up the pipeline because we're not dealing with this. So this is the letter he writes. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, that's true, and was about to be killed by them, which is true, when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him. That part is not true. I mean, it is true, but he's kind of leaving out the fact that he was about to flog him, and then he realized he was a Roman citizen, so then he had to stop, like, mid-flogging. So he's just, you know, messing with the facts a little bit here, okay? Having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Yeah, he might have changed the order there a little bit. Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Well, let's read that again. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Does that sound like anybody else that we know? Is that not exactly what happened to Jesus? He's being questioned about things to do with their law, but didn't, they didn't actually find anything worthy of killing him. Okay. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I set him, sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him that night to Antipatris, 
And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. This is just funny, right? Because now the whole Roman army is protecting Paul, right? God's got a funny sense of humor. He's used his nephew, who might be part of the League of Assassins, to help protect Paul. And now he's using the whole Roman army to help protect Paul, okay? And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, because basically he had to be from that area for um, Felix to be the one that would have to deal with it. Okay? And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Okay? That leads us to table time too. We have another two minutes. Has God ever used an unlikely person to help you? doesn't necessarily have to be an enemy of yours, but has God ever used an unlikely person to help you? Take two minutes. I know that was probably a strange question for some of you all, but I think that this is the normative experience of Christians, is that God uses unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. Anybody who is a Christian, you understand that you're an unlikely person to be doing what God has for you. Paul would understand in some ways, right, he was perfectly equipped, but in other ways, he was the guy who was previously murdering Christians. He's an unlikely person to be a part of God's plan. This is what God does. He takes unlikely people and makes them his, okay? Moving into chapter 24 now, this is when things start getting a little, a little more contentious again. So after five days, the high priest Ananias, the guy we saw before, right, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Okay, what is Tertullus? He's a lawyer. He's a slick, talking lawyer. That's what they're doing here, okay? They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace. No, no, no. Okay. Um, what he's referencing there is what would be known as the Roman peace or the Pax Romana in the Latin. If none of you all would have had this, but if you had been in my eighth grade Bible class this year at Fairfax Christian School, I would have called on you. And if you didn't know that, I would have taken 100 points off of your total grade. But that's neither here nor there. Um, it's the idea of the Pax Romana. Because the Romans basically ruled the known world at the time, and they had guards and rulers and leaders everywhere, things were relatively calm. They were relatively calm, okay? It was a good time to travel. There was less robbers and things like that, okay? So in general, relatively calm. However, this also means that they're ruling over and basically invaded in the Jewish people's land, okay? So it's like the occupation for them. So no Jew, no real Jew, would have seen the Roman peace as a good thing because it's really the Roman occupation. So for him to say this is, first of all, a lie because it's not because of Felix that things are like this. And second of all, it's not something he really believes. This reminds me of the joke, how do you know when a lawyer is lying? It's whenever their lips are moving, okay? That's, that's what's going on here, all right? He is sucking up. We're going to see him more. He is sucking up so bad to this guy, Felix. That's what he's doing, okay? He said, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, 
reforms are being made for this nation. No, they're not. First of all, he doesn't name any, because he can't, because there aren't any. But he's just, he's so general. You know, reforms are being made. Things are getting better. They're not. They're not at all. Okay, we're going to find more about Felix in a second. I'll tell you more about him in a second. But that's not what's happening. Okay, that's not what's happening. Okay, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. We're just so thankful for you, Felix. Just a real godsend. But to detain you no further, you know, I could, I could talk more. I could say so many more nice things about you. He doesn't have anything else to say, but that's beside the point. Okay, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, right? Okay. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Right? We talked about this. Lee talked about this last week. Wherever Paul goes, crazy things start happening. Okay? One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It's interesting the way that he says this. and We're going to see in a second the way that Paul says it. Okay. He calls them the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, which once again is a reference to Jesus because Jesus was from Nazareth. The saying that they had in that time was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay. If you were from Nazareth, you were unclean, you were disgusting, nobody liked you. Okay. It's like, I'm trying not to offend anybody. I don't know, maybe being from the backwoods of West Virginia or something like that. Okay. Ohio, yes. <laughs> Tell me why Ohio became the biggest meme with my fifth graders this year. It was synonymous with the curse word. One kid said to another, you're in Ohio, and the other kid said he cursed at me. And I'm like, that's not what happens. I'm not, I don't, I don't know. Pray for me. Anyway, um, I still haven't recovered. Okay, Ohio. We'll go with Ohio. Sorry, Michael. Uh, <laughs> my friend's from Ohio, so. That is what it is, okay? They're from Ohio. So imagine the idea of, you know, like an astrophysicist or something come from Ohio. That would be impossible. So in the same way, it would be impossible for the Messiah, the savior of the Jewish people, to have come from Nazareth. That couldn't have happened. Couldn't have happened. Those were where the losers were. Couldn't have happened. So that's what he's doing. He's making fun of them. They follow after this Nazarene. Are y'all serious? He's making fun of them. He's making fun of them. Okay, that's the way he, he says it. Okay, watch how Paul says it in a second. He even tried to profane the temple, but for, before he could do it, we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So basically three things there, all right? So... We found this man a plague who's stirring up riots. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he tried to profane the temple. Okay? The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. So they're like, yep, we totally agree with what he's saying here. Okay? So when the governor had nodded to him to speak, watch out, Paul starts this. Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. I cheerfully make my defense. And he says something true. And he says, well, you have been a judge for a while. That's all he's got, right? He can't say all the wonderful rhetorical nonsense that the lawyer has. But he's saying, well, I can try and say something nice, which all he's got is, well, you have been a judge for a while. 
You know, this is part of him living his life in good conscience is he's not very good at lying, okay? He's not very good at lying, okay? It's interesting to note also, right? Paul has to advocate for himself here. Paul has to advocate for himself here. He says this, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. By the way, it's been five days since he's been there, so it was really a week only that he had in Jerusalem. What did he go to do in Jerusalem? He went to worship. He went to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. So basically, point one, wrong. Neither can you prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, right, not the sect of the Nazarenes, the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Okay? Maybe you've heard somebody say, well, Jewish people, they believe in the Old Testament. And I'm here to say, no, they don't. Because if they believed in the Old Testament, they would believe in Jesus. That's what he's saying here. He says, I worship the God of our fathers. The God that I'm worshiping by following the way, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? They didn't call themselves Christians. Once again, that was another insult the Romans made for people at the time. Oh, you think you're just like Christ, little Christ. That's what Christians meant. Now we call ourselves that. I don't know why. I guess we like insulting each other, something like that, right? The way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Jesus is equal to the God of our fathers. And I believe everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. He's saying Jesus is alluded to in the Old Testament. It's the same God. If you really believe the Old Testament, you would believe in Jesus. That's what he's saying here. And that's a pretty big charge. It's a pretty big charge to say. Okay? Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Okay, so he gives them something that they both agree on. Okay, table time three, another two minutes. Who was really on trial in this story? And who was Paul's advocate? Okay, two minutes. That was really short, but hopefully those questions were easy enough. I gave you some thinkers earlier, and hopefully this was simple. Uh, I would like to note something earlier. I kind of wonder what happened to the 40-plus men who said that they were not going to eat or drink anything until they had killed Paul, because Paul's still alive, and, uh, you know, I guess they're still not eating or drinking anything, so <laughs> it's kinda, that's kind of rough. All right, obviously the question here is Paul's not the one on trial. Jesus is the one that's on trial. It's the same thing that we had when Jesus was killed. He's the one that's on trial. Who is Paul's advocate? This is what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, is that he is our advocate, right? I don't want you to miss those things. Paul was not alone. Paul was defending Jesus, but he also had the Holy Spirit as his advocate. He didn't have some slick-talking lawyer to do everything for him, to lie. He had the Holy Spirit who deals in truth, who deals in truth. 
Okay? We're going to go real quick through this last part. We'll have one more table time, and then we'll finish up. Okay? So, it says this. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Once again, he's restating what he said earlier. I've lived my life in all good conscience. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. He's saying, why did he come to Jerusalem? While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, so he wasn't breaking any of their laws, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. They should have, should they have anything against me? So we saw this earlier that um, they made sure Ananias was there to accuse him. He's saying, basically, it's the idea that you have the right to face your accuser here. He's saying, you're going to bring up the charge that the Jews in Asia have against me. They're not even here. So if they want to bring that up, if they want to show up here and bring that up, then we can talk about it. But we're not talking about it because they're not even here. Okay? It's a good idea. All right? They ought to be here before... um, before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today, this day. Okay? So he's saying, basically, he's just recapping what happened. I didn't start a riot. I mean, I did say this one thing, and then a riot happened, but that wasn't really my fault, okay? But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, it's kind of interesting, put them off saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. He's stalling. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So basically, he gets kept in the palace this whole time, and his friends are allowed to see him. So not the worst thing ever, but it is kind of interfering with something. Okay? After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul, heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he, or as he, that's Paul, by the way, reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed, said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Okay, this is important to understand what we know about Felix here. His wife, Drusilla, that's actually his third wife. And by the way, when he took her as his wife, she was married to somebody else. So, as an introduction to him, not a great guy. The other thing Felix is known for is being really bad at putting out riots by making them worse. He was so violent in the way that we, he dealt with riots, we'll see here in a second in the last verse, that he actually gets recalled to Rome. The reason he gets recalled to Rome is because he was being investigated for being too brutal with the, day, the way he dealt with riots. You know who was saying that he was being too brutal with the way that he was dealing with riots? Emperor Nero. If you know anything historically, if Nero's saying you're being too brutal, you're probably being too brutal. You're probably being too brutal, okay? So this is what we know about Felix. Not a great guy. So all those lies we saw before are really bad lies, okay? Right? So it's interesting the things that Paul brings up. Righteousness, (laughs) self-control, 
Oh, this is this your third third wife, Felix? Self-control? All right, okay, interesting. Uh, and the coming judgment, all right? And at the same time, this is what Felix is hoping for. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. He's hoping to get a bribe. He's hoping to get a bribe, okay? When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, right? He gets sent to Rome to talk to Nero. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Which gets us to our last table time here. What is something you had to wait for for a long time? What was that experience like? It's going to be a good question to lead us into our last part. Let's talk about that for two minutes. Here's how I want to finish today. I want to finish today by talking about waiting. By talking about waiting. Yeah, see? It's uncomfortable. (laughs) Nobody likes waiting. Just me stopping for 10 seconds there. Deeply uncomfortable. Deeply uncomfortable. Right? I have a couple of principles that I'd like to talk about in regards to waiting. These are things that we should be doing and things that Paul did while he's waiting. It's important to say here, what is Paul looking forward to the most? He wants to go to Rome. What does Paul not get to do for a long time? He doesn't get to go to Rome. He's stuck there for two years. He's stuck there for two years. That's kind of glanced over in the text, but that's really important. The human angle of it. God has made Paul this promise that he's going to get to go to Rome. He promises that. That's what Paul wants to do. And instead, he has sat there for two years. He sat there for two years. So I'm going to run through a couple things and then hopefully give you all a good example that will help. Things that we do while we're waiting. We remain faithful to God. We remain faithful to God. During his time in the waiting... Paul remains faithful to God. He doesn't question what God would have for him. He remains faithful to God. I say reject pragmatism. You all might not know what that means necessarily as a word, but you've surely heard it played out. It's the idea of, well, if it works, then we should do it. It's a bad idea. It's a really bad idea. Because it doesn't consider the human factor and it doesn't also consider the spiritual factor. I said this, God will fulfill God's promises in God's way. God will fulfill God's promises in God's way. Think about the story of Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, you will be the father of many nations. And Abraham's like, well, that's pretty sweet. But at the same time, I'm not really sure how that's going to happen because my wife is old as dirt. That's Kind of a translation error, but also like that's the same idea of what he said. She's really old. She's past the time of having kids. So you know what he does? I've got it. God has promised this to me. I'm going to help God out. God has promised this thing to me. I've got this concubine over here. I'm just going to get with her. We're going to have the kid. That's how I'm going to be a father of many nations. No! If God has promised something to you, God is going to fulfill it in God's ways. You don't have to manipulate it. God will fulfill God's promises in God's ways. 
use God's means, though. We use God's means. So that doesn't mean we don't do anything, right? That doesn't mean we don't do anything. I'm not going to use the story of Sarah there, but that doesn't mean we don't do anything. Obviously, we know what he would have to do, right? But use the means that God has given us to accomplish God's promises, okay? Watch for Satan's lie. Watch for Satan's lie. This is the lie that we hear in the garden, and it's the lie that we hear when Jesus is being tempted. He says, God is holding out on you. You have to wait. God is holding out on you, and I can give you what you want right now. At any point, Paul could have believed this lie. He could have paid a bribe to Felix and left. At any point. Felix is sending for him constantly, like, so we're going to do this? You're going to pay the bribe? No. Paul could have paid that bribe and gone to Rome at any time he would have wanted. But he chose not to. Because he wanted to get God's promises in God's way. Right? This is what happens in the temptation of Jesus. Satan tells him, one of the things he tells him, he says, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. You just bow down and you might have to bow down and worship me. That's neither here nor there. The important part is you're going to get what you want. Jesus was going to get those things one way or another. But he just wanted it right now. Satan says, screw waiting. I can give it to you right now. Adam and Eve in the garden. You can't eat from that one tree? Are you sure? That doesn't sound like any God I would want to follow. God's holding out on you, man. I can give you what you want right now. Is this not every single thing that you hear from your friends when they are tempting you to sin? God is holding out on you. But you can't go to that party. What you can't drink. What you can't do this. What you can't do that. I mean, my God's a God of love. Why can't you do what you want? You can have it, and you can have it right now. Because God loves you, and he's going to forgive you no matter what. That's Satan's lie. That's Satan's lie. It's the lie you hear every single day. This is the thing that your friends say to you over and over and over again. God is holding out on you. You're missing out because of God. You're missing out because of God. Friends, God is not holding you back. God is holding you up. God is not holding you back. God is holding you up. All right, last thing. God's patience is God's preparing. God is patient, so his people should be patient. When I talked about the need for waiting, there's nobody here who shouldn't have some example of what it feels like to wait for something. But God is patient because God is preparing. I don't know why God put Paul there for two years, but God was preparing him. For me right now, 
God is forcing me to be patient. When I graduated college at 22, I said I wanted to do two things, and there was really a third one that was more important, but I was trying to ignore. The two things were this. I wanted to become a teacher, which I am, and I wanted to win a state championship as a basketball coach. I'm a teacher now, and I've won two state championships as a basketball coach, as an assistant. It wasn't my doing. just happened to hitch myself to really good players, and it worked out well. Okay? God gave me the things that I wanted, but it was that third thing that he hasn't given me. The thing that I want. I'm 27. I'm not married. In case you hadn't noticed. I want to be married. If there's one desire I would say above anything else that I have right now in my life, it's that I want to be married. I want somebody to like me. And God has not given that to me. And I have to hear everything that you all have to hear about it. In some ways, it's easier the older that you get because you have more things outside of yourself that help you get more self-worth, right? So, you know, if things aren't going well with the girl, I'm like, well, at least I have a job and at least I'm doing well in coaching and stuff like that. But if I just had to recap the last six months of my life, I'm willing to say I've gotten ghosted more times than any of you all. I deal with the same things you deal with. I could go through my phone right now and say, ghosted, 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 ghosted. It's a sad reality of the things that I'm dealing with. And for years, I couldn't get anybody to like me. And then I have to hear myself, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why doesn't anybody like me? I just want somebody to like me. I feel like this is a good thing, a desire for a wife that God has given me, and yet, I'm being forced to wait. Why? Why do I have to wait? And that's where Satan's lie comes. And this has come in just the last six months in particular. I don't have time to get into the stories. But Satan says, I can give you what you want right now. God has promised this, but I can give it to you right now. And Satan did try to give it to me in the last six months right now. And I almost took it. But then I realized I wanted God's promises in God's way. I wanted God's promises in God's way. Because that's the only way that it's going to work. God is not holding me back from anything. God is holding me up. He is preparing me for what he has for me in the future. He's preparing my future wife for me which is going to be a lot, so she'd better get prepared. (laughs) God is preparing me in your waiting right now. God is preparing you for what he has for you in the future. And by the way, you have a beautiful inheritance in God. On the one hand, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. He wants to go to Rome. On the other hand, he said, to die is gain because I get to be with my Savior forever. That's your inheritance. You get to be with your Savior forever. You won't have to question if somebody likes you. You're going to feel God's love. You won't get ghosted anymore. Maybe the Holy Ghost, but you know. (laughs) There'll be no ghosting in heaven. There'll be no pain like that. You won't have to question whether you have W. Riz or L. Riz, right? It won't happen. God is not holding back on you. God has a beautiful 
inheritance for you, and God is preparing you for that. You need to learn how to wait and be faithful in the waiting. Want God's promises God's way. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to speak. I just pray that we would learn from Paul that in no matter what place of life that we are, that we would be faithful to you, that we would serve you properly and do things in your way according to your word. In your name I pray, amen. Thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. Man, you guys are blessed with some awesome teachers. A um, couple of things. One, I just want to say thanks, Jonathan, for bringing the word and help us think through a lot of these things. Uh, thank you for all you table leaders who are here. I love that we get to have generally like s- smaller tables, sort of. They're somewhat bigger than I thought. Okay. Uh, but I do really love when tables stay within six or seven because then it's actually have discussion. So keep that there. Um, I know we're a little over time. I've got uh, one, one last announcement for you. So if you can stay with me, really helpful. Um, and it's a, it's a little bit of a uh, bittersweet announcement. Uh, John uh, Fletcher will be uh, ending his time as a youth associate after summer camp. So, yeah, so John, John's going to be, uh, he's going to remain through summer camp, but his, uh, his last week is going to be summer camp. And just so you kind of know the reasons why, I want to tell you is uh, in, in full transparency. So his main passion, as many of you know, is worship. He loves worship. Uh, it's a passion he's had. I've seen him have that passion uh, as a student. I got, to be, I got to be John's youth pastor, which is really cool. And uh, we want to see him lean into that passion. And the, the youth associate position has a lot of different responsibilities. And John has uh, faithfully pursued all of them, but want to see him, both him and, and me, want to see him be able to fully lean into that. And so one is just his passion for worship. So he's already uh, been over the last couple months uh, talking to different churches and uh, seeking to uh, find uh, a worship leader role at a church somewhere. So he's pers- different churches are talking to him. And the second thing is my desire is to raise up a leader that can ultimately take my position in senior high, uh, just like Bob did with me. And so probably for six or eight months, me and John have just been talking and, and realizing that's not totally where, where his, his giftings lie, even though he's on an amazing job and he's grown so much over these two years. It's just not where his giftings lie. And so after two years, you know, I want to see him kind of pursue the passions he has and see coming in, someone come into this role that has, uh, that, that would be where their giftings lie. Um, so I'll just say this, John has been a huge blessing in student ministry. A couple of things I wrote down. Uh, it's been really cool for me to minister and serve alongside a former student that I was able to pastor. Uh, me and John would meet at the, when he was in high school, we would meet at the McDonald's over in Ashburn many a mornings uh, just to walk through God's word and just seeing him grow. Uh, as, you, as you know, John, is, John has brought a level of passion to everything that he does. It uh, doesn't matter if it's the funniest thing or the most serious thing. It brings a level of passion and energy, which has been cool. Uh, his passion for passion and energy for worship through music has been clear through so many different ways uh, in the student ministry. And I think his, his passion for worship has enabled all of us to worship Jesus and draw closer to Jesus, which has been really cool. Uh, John's brought a, f- a level of fun and lightheartedness uh, to everything. Uh, you know, who killed John Fletcher, part one and part two. Uh, a level of fun there. Uh, his funny announcement videos uh, and just all around his love for people and having fun is a huge gift. Uh, on a serious note, he's cared for the worship team in a really, really cool way. I've seen him pastor them. Uh, he's faithfully helped them pursue excellence 
uh, as they lead and as they worship. Um, and uh, John started a support group for guys who are struggling with pornography, and that's something that I've wanted to see happen for a long time. And John was like, I have the what. I know what I want to do, and I, don't ex- I sort of know how the how will look, and we're just going to do this, and that's been, that's been really, really cool. And uh, John has just left the mark on the student ministry, and we're, uh, we're super, super thankful for that. Um, so the plan is for John to finish out his time through summer camp. He'll be there to lead worship, be a small group leader, uh, just, like, just like last year. So we've got a little less than a month uh, with him, and I know it would massively encourage him if you would just, uh, over this next month, just take a moment just to tell him how God has used him in your life. I know that would really encourage him. Regarding the worship team, um, I want to talk more with you guys in the coming months uh, just about uh, what they'll look like moving forward for the worship team, because uh, there'll be a huge hole there uh, with John not there. My God will provide for, for what he needs, as he always does. And um, lastly... I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this because I wanted this to be about John, but we actually already have someone that's going to take the position, which is really cool. So I'm going to introduce you to that person next week, which will be really cool. So uh, let me uh, let me pray. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you guys. Um, I love each and every one of you. Um, you guys are the best part of my job um when I was in Nashville and Lee called me and was like maybe you should consider doing this my first reaction was like no like why would God want me to leave doing what I'm doing there to go do youth worship and do youth ministry back in Northern Virginia and it turns out it's exactly what God wanted to me and this has been the most fulfilling period of my entire life so thank you um i don't know what's next um like lee said i'm talking to other churches i'm gonna be leading worship at a church in seattle next week Uh, places all over um i'm gonna miss this i'm gonna give 130 percent to everything i do the next couple weeks while i'm here and especially at summer camp um and what lee just said um the person that's going to be replacing me is amazing. You will be in very good hands, I can say. But thank you. Amen. Well, if you're a visitor here, I can tell you that we don't normally have announcements like this. But what I can tell you is that uh, the love of Christ and how we have brothers and sisters in Christ is real. And that's why you feel this, the level of emotion, how we care for each other. And that's a real thing, and we have that in Christ. Um, if you're a visitor here and this is your first time, uh, we'd love to meet you at the foosball table. Christina will meet there over you. Just there's a visitor card in your thing. We just want to connect with you because we want to care for you. Uh, we've got worship night tonight, so I hope you come out for that. Uh, let me end and pray for John and just pray for the rest of the night. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word in the book of Acts uh, and just seeing how you guided Paul and you used just unlikely people. And uh, Lord, I pray for John as, as he goes out, Lord, in this, uh, this area of worship that you would guide him to the right place, Lord, where he can use the gifts. And I, I just think about the waiting period, even just these two years as you've been using John uh, in this group and preparing him for what's next. We trust that you are faithful in that, Lord. And we trust that you will provide the right person for worship here. Um, And thank you for providing the person to take John's position. And uh, Lord, we just 
thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.